Let me speak a little bit today uh, about how to take courage with us to our God-inspired future. First of all, I want to remind us today that we can create a God-inspired future, a future more and better than our present. The future is in you now. The future is in you now. Most of us have an awareness of the future that is in us. We have moments when we catch our breath in wonder as we briefly glimpse possibilities vastly preferred over our past and present. We intuit something great and grand and from God percolating, I like that word, percolating, just beneath the surface of our lives. We can become fully awake to this future. We can bring this future from the nebulous realm of the subconscious into the world of the conscious. We can partner with God to create the tomorrow that he's dreamed for us, the future that we were made for. We can create our God-inspired futures. Now, God-inspired futures are futures that are better, best, preferred, But God doesn't force these futures on us. He allows us to choose whether or not to actualize them. We can cooperate with him in the continuing act of creating the life and world that he envisioned. And we can, each of us can, experience more and more of the life that he planned for us before terrible human choices messed everything up in this world. I desperately want this preferred future, this future that God planned for us and those that we love. And I'm not only referring to future generations, opportunities that only our children or even their children will be able to experience. I'm talking about imminent futures, eventualities that we can all witness sooner rather than later. Now, in order for us to create, the, create this future, it's going to take courage. And I want to talk about that. I uh, am, am, have been thinking this past week about the Wright brothers, um, Wilbur and Orville Wright, who um, created the airplane. And uh, I've been thinking about how that they moved from ideation, from a dream, from a from a a possible future to something that was real and lived. And um, the fact is that for centuries, brilliant minds like Leonardo da Vinci imagined the possibilities of human flight. Then in 1903, the Wright brothers actually did create what had been in a lot of people's minds, a powered flying machine and flew it in controlled flight. And when they did, a plethora of new realities began to come into being. And today those include an aviation industry in the United States alone that carries more than six million passengers a year and employs hundreds of thousands of people. Um, Even though the airline ministry is is damaged right now, uh, it will come back. And and the fact is that we have entire economies that revolve around the airline industry. These expanding worlds were birthed from an idea. So so, 
Uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright, though, didn't just have an idea and then snap their fingers and create an airplane. Their idea of a flying machine didn't just pop out of their minds and into reality. That's not what happened at all. I thoroughly enjoyed reading David McAuliffe's biography of these brothers sometime over the last couple of years, and I was so moved by their courage and perseverance. These two preacher's sons, simple machine shop owners, had a dream that would change the world, and they didn't allow anything to stop them from bringing that future they envisioned to pass. However, it took years to bring that dream to reality. It took years of constant investment and risk and courageous action. Before they actually flew a motorized aircraft successfully, they attempted to fly hundreds of times unsuccessfully. And they failed over and over. They crashed and burned, literally, again and again. I want to read just a few excerpts from just one chapter of McAuliffe's The Wright Brothers. Now, this chapter kind of picks it up in the middle of their story. They had successfully flown 57 seconds at Kitty Hawk, and now we're experimenting on flying in a sustained way on a prairie outside of their hometown of Dayton. And here's David McAuliffe writing, just, I'm just grabbing a couple excerpts to give a sense of what they were going through. On June 10th, McAuliffe wrote, the machine hit ground because of faulty steering. Another day, a tail was smashed during a landing. On another, the tail wires became disarranged. On August 5th, Orville struck ground at start. Wilbur went again on August 8th, and a wing hit the ground before leaving the track. Two days later, a rudder was smashed, a propeller broken. There was nothing spectacular about these many trials, remembered a high school science teacher who was lending the brothers a hand with all of this. This teacher wrote, their patient perseverance, their calm faith in ultimate success, their mutual consideration of each other might have been considered phenomenal in any but men who were well-born and well-reared. These flights or spurts at flying, they always made in turn, and after every trial, the two inventors, quite apart, held long and confidential consultation with always some new gain. They were getting nearer and nearer the moment when sustained flight would be made, just a little bit more. McAuliffe goes on, few took any interest in the matter or in the two brothers who were to become Dayton's greatest heroes ever. They were also putting their lives at risk as well they knew. On a flight on August 24th, hit by a sudden gust of wind, Orville smashed into the ground at 30 miles an hour. And though he suffered no broken bones, was so badly shaken and bruised, he was unable to fly for another month. With few exceptions, there seemed to be no public interest at all, no local excitement or curiosity, no sense of wonder over the miraculous thing happening right in Dayton's own backyard. Nor did anyone seem to appreciate the kind of minds, not to say the extraordinary skill and courage, 
needed to succeed at so daring a venture. In five months, the brothers were to make no less than 50 test flights at Huffman Prairie. And Charlie Taylor, ever on hand in case of motor trouble, would say that every time he watched either of them head down the starting track, he had the awful feeling he might never again see him alive. To Wilbur and Orville, it seemed fear was a stranger. Now, I know that was a long reading. But I hope that you get the picture of these guys who changed the world, beginning with an idea that had already existed, but now was in their minds. This future that was in them was created, not by some miraculous action, but by getting up every day and courageously facing danger and persevering through trial and difficulty in order to actually bring this future to pass. See, it amazes me how many times they failed, how many times they crashed and suffered injury and loss, but they kept getting up and kept getting better and kept trying to fly. I think it's safe to say that they kept their courage in spite of apparent failure. Now part of what I want to say today is that there will be crashes and burns on our journey to our preferred futures. And if we're going to get there, if we're going to get to the future that is in us, we're going to have to keep our courage. Remember, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is facing our fear and moving forward in our lives. It takes courage to know that you will face adversity, but you just keep getting up and you keep moving forward in your life. It takes courage to move from idea to reality. It takes courage to move from possibility to practicality. It takes courage to move from expectation to actually give birth to a thing. And sometimes it just takes courage to hang in there, to never give up, to just keep trying, to get back up and to keep moving forward. But if you keep getting up and trying again, someday you'll fly. I actually got applause from a live audience. I'm just going to take me a moment. See, success, a lot of success, this is really important, guys. A lot of success is just getting up every day and moving forward. I offer a definition of success in my book, Live 10. Here it is. Success is the process of accomplishing those things for which we were destined in a way that honors God, loves people, and brings joy. Success is a process. Success is not necessarily a destination. It's a constant movement toward our God-dreamed future. The nature of success is three steps forward and two steps back. One step forward and one step back. Five steps forward, two steps back. I know that's a lot of forwards and backs. But if you do the math, that's cumulatively four steps forward. And in my book, that's called success. Just keep moving forward. The three-step forward, two-step back nature of success is why it takes courage to be successful. 
We will face difficulty and challenge, but we just have to keep moving forward. As Angela Duckworth of the University of Pennsylvania has argued, people who succeed tend to find one goal in the distant future and then chase it through thick and thin. It's the Wright brothers. How many times did you crash before you flew? Hundreds. But you just keep getting up and moving towards the God-given dream that's in you. Now, I say all of this to lead us back to our discussion about how the Apostle Paul took courage with him to, to his God-dream future. The Apostle Paul, as we've talked about in recent weeks, had to take courage with him to his God-dream future, and so do we. Now, in case you haven't been tracking with us in recent weeks, the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and it appeared that his ministry, and perhaps even his life, was over. But in the midst of this terrible ordeal, Acts chapter 23, verse 11 tells us, The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Now for Paul, this was a picture of a preferred future. This was the future that was in him. Standing in Rome, preaching the gospel to the most influential people in the world was a future that was in him, but that he would now have to cooperate in order to bring this thing to pass. God was saying, Paul, right now it looks like you're done, but you're not done. I have plans for you. You're going to get there. You're going to have to take courage with you. It actually took Paul two years until he actually got to Rome. And as we'll discuss and have discussed, he faced all kinds of difficulties. But he got there because he took courage with him. Now, I've extrapolated five principles from Paul's, pardon me, I've, I've taken five principles from Paul's journey to Rome to help us see how to take courage with us. And over the last couple of weeks in our wonderful outdoor celebrations, I've uh, presented two of these five principles. The first one, step one, is to see where you're going, have a picture of this preferred future in your mind. Secondly, uh, uh, the second step is to starve your enemies. You're going to have enemies. We have to follow the words of Jesus counterintuitively to, to, to starve our enemies. I'm not going to go back into that today. Today, with all that I've already said, hopefully, in your minds, I want to quickly, relatively quickly, offer steps three and four. Now, one benefit of being inside today is that I've shortened my preaching time outside because of the sun, you know, I'm concerned about everybody sitting in the hot sun. But it's nice and cool in here today, isn't it? People are sitting at home on their couches, kitchen tables, drinking coffee, petting the dog, paying a little bit of attention to what I'm saying, maybe. But I, I'm going to return to my previous preaching time, which is, I don't know, two or three hours. Not really. Uh, probably about 40 minutes. But I am going to take just a few more minutes to kind of unpack what's in my heart today and it's going to let us get relatively quickly through two more steps step three and four of how to take courage with us and then by god's grace next week in our amazing sunday evening baptisms courage awards uh, uh worship time festival atmosphere and firework night 
uh, I'll offer step five, okay? So here's take courage step three. It's to keep your courage even when things go wrong. Keep your courage even when things go wrong. So after two years in prison, Paul finally set out for Rome accompanied by a Roman centurion and a small company of soldiers. He was under arrest. They were taking him to Caesar to stand trial. They planned to put him on a succession of trips from Caesarea, where he'd been for almost two years, on the Mediterranean to Rome. As they got ready to board a ship at a port in Fairhaven's Crete. They took a ship and then they'd get off the ship and take another ship and it's like they had connecting uh, 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 flights and airports. This is how he's traveling but by ship. As they got on a ship at a port at Fairhaven's Crete, Paul had a, a, a word from God that there was going to be a tremendous gale that would ultimately cause the ship to go down. And he warned his escorts accordingly. But instead of listening to the preacher, they listened to the weather prognosticators and the captain of the ship. We had a conversation like that yesterday morning and our staff team about whether it was going to rain this morning, but that's another subject. Instead of listening to Paul, they listened to the weather forecaster and the captain of the ship and they took a vote and the majority of those who voted, and I think there were 276 men on board if I remember correctly, the majority of those who voted said, let's go. And they literally set sail into a mistake of biblical proportions. Acts chapter 27 verse 12 says, the majority decided that we should sail. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. So they get, invo- they get caught up in this Northeaster. It became extremely dark. The ship started to be buffeted about by huge waves so large that they actually thought the ship was going to fall apart. And somehow, we're told in Scripture, they took ropes and put the ropes under and around the ship to to tie it together to keep it from falling apart. This went on for several days. They ended up throwing all their cargo overboard. They ended up throwing all their tackle overboard. And then, in the midst of this terrible situation, Paul had an I told you so moment where he called together somehow this 275 other guys onto the deck of the ship and he made a, he made a speech he preached a short sermon acts 27:21 paul said men you should have taken my advice not to sail from crete then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss paul could have rubbed it in further but he didn't instead he went on to say now i urge you keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost only the ship will be destroyed paul said last night an angel of god i love this this phrase he said last night an angel of god whose i am and whom i serve stood beside me and said do not be afraid paul you must stand trial before caesar now what's going on right there You know, you have to read the five chapters in the book of Acts to kind of get the whole picture. But Jesus is now through this angel saying to Paul, Paul, I told you you're going to Rome and nothing is going to keep you from it, even this terrible storm. So don't be afraid. 
and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And then Paul, he said, that's what the angel said to me. And he looks at all these guys in the middle of this storm and he says, so keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we're still going to crash. We must run aground on some island. And in fact, that's what happened. They hit a sandbar close to an island called Malta. The ship broke apart. Those who could swim swam to the island. Those who couldn't grab things that could float like broken pieces from the ship. But all of them got safely. They shipwrecked, but they lived. They shipwrecked, but they were still on their way to their future. Sometimes we shipwreck. We crash and burn. Sometimes it's because of things that's, that are out of our control. For instance, the coronavirus, the way it's affected the economy, the way that it's infected uh, uh, unemployment. Um, it's, it's a, it's a, it, we're in the middle of a shipwreck right, right, right now. Let's face it. And it doesn't appear at this moment there's a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to what's going on. I'm talking to people. You know, it seems like uh, so many people in our church have somehow not only survived but figured out a way to thrive in this time. And then there are others. I'm thinking about several of our uh, the, 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 the several several of the Broadway performers who are in our church. I heard from one this week in email saying, I'm sh- "I know that I'm going to be employed at le- uh, unemployed for at least the next six months." And basically, they were raising their hand to say, uh, "I wonder uh, if we can talk and if I can find a way to serve meaningfully here during that time." But I. I think about people who, you know, the, the Broadway performers can't help the Broadway shut down. It, it, it's a shipwreck. I can't imagine what this means in, in, in people's lives. The, a dream that you've worked toward all of your life, and all of a sudden, it seems like the, the, the dream might be dead. But let me promise you something. Let me promise you something. Though it may feel like a shipwreck, it's a temporary setback. You have to keep your courage because if God gave you your dream, you will get there. And then sometimes we shipwreck because of our own decisions, mistakes that we make. We're like the men who didn't listen to Paul. You know, Paul told them it was going to happen, and they went anyway, and what he said would happen would happen, but God showed up in his grace and still saved them from the worst possible result from their mistake. But the fact is, sometimes we're like the men who didn't listen to Paul. We crash and burn because we don't listen to God or the people he sends to protect us, or the gut instinct that warns us on some level of impending disaster. Some of our messes are just repercussions of dumb human mistakes, even on the way to our God-inspired future. At some juncture, we make a decision that propels us into the harrowing winds of confusion and, and controversy and consternation. We try to put an anchor down, to stop the leaking, to salvage the situation, but, but we end up hanging on to a splintered board from our shattered situation just try to keep from drowning we find ourselves exhausted and we just have enough energy to get to the next place to lick our wounds to assess the damage and and hopefully to start making plans about how to get to our destination listen if you're on one of those shipwreck detours that cause you to feel 
as though you deserve to go down, if you're grasping onto pieces of wood in the middle of a raging ocean, if you're desperately swimming or treading water trying to find a dry place, listen to the voice of God saying, keep your courage. I still have the same plans for you that I had before I created you. Have faith in me. It will happen just as I told you. See, one of the amazing things about the story with Paul is that though these, these guys voted to, and got themselves in this situation, though, though God had Paul say, look, I did tell you, though he did basically, if you please call him to repentance for the decision they'd made, he then doesn't, you know, hammer that home. He says, look, nevertheless, nevertheless, even though we're going to suffer loss here, we're not going to lose our lives. We're going to end up on shore. We're going to get to where we're going. So keep your courage. I think some of us sometimes think that we, we are to blame for, for, for the situation we got ourselves in. And sometimes we are. And we feel like in that moment that God's going to give up on us. But I promise you, he won't. Instead of imagining God standing there yelling at you, why don't you listen to that still small voice where God says, yeah, I know you got yourself into this, but I love you anyway. My grace is sufficient for you. You're going to find power in your weakness. You're going to recover from this. And I'm still going to help you get where I promised you you would go. You just have to get back up. And you just have to keep moving forward. Now I believe that the basis of courage is really found in Paul's words. I already read them where he, he says to those guys on that ship in the middle of the storm, he said, the God whose I am and whom I serve sent an angel. Last night an angel, the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me, so keep up your courage, men. I just love that. You know what? When you know at the core of your being whose you are, when you know that. See, we don't have God. God has us. And I have courage because of whose I am. This is a familiar refrain in Scripture where God tells his people, you can be courageous because I am with you. For instance, to Joshua, all the way back uh, in, the, in the beginning still of the Old Testament where Joshua has taken over for Moses and he now has a responsibility to lead the people across the Jordan to the Promised Land. And he probably was a little frightened. God said to him, Joshua 1, 2, Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. See, you can have courage because of whose you are. God is with you. And then Paul said, not only do I know whose I am, but I know who I serve. See, Paul was living in service to God. He was not chasing his dreams. This is why we talk, talk about God-inspired dreams. He wasn't chasing his dreams. If he was just chasing his dreams, he would have been out there in the middle of that raging ocean all alone, if you please. But it was the God whose he was and the God whom he served. See, Paul was chasing his God-inspired dreams. And this should give us great courage. 
When we are his and we are in his service, he just keeps showing up even in the midst of tremendous storms and he just keeps saying, keep your courage. I am with you and we're going to get to where I called you. Now here's take courage step four. I'll be quick with this. Take courage step four is to learn to shake off the small stuff. The shipwreck to me represents the big stuff. But I think we also have to learn to shake off the small stuff. So here's the deal. So Paul ends up on this island, Malta, saved from the shipwreck. Now he's gone through all kinds of stuff. He's gotten arrested. He's gotten death threats. He's been sitting in jail for years without a proper trial. Now shipwrecked. He washes up on this island called Malta. He and the rest of his wet and weary shipmates were welcomed warmly by the local people. Beautiful story of hospitality. Not time to talk about it now. Somebody start, began to start a bonfire to warm these guys in their condition. And Paul got involved and he gathered a pile of brush to help kindle the flames. And evidently when the fire started, Paul's putting some kindling on the fire and a snake comes out of the kindling and sank its poisonous fangs in Paul's hand. It's like, you know, Paul's standing there now, wet, exhausted, coming through this storm and now he's got a snake hanging off his hand. It's like, what else could go wrong? You guys ever have days like that? It's like, what else could go wrong? Acts 28, when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off. I love it. Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So here Paul is, standing there, trying to steady himself and recover from the latest near tragedy, and this snake comes up and bites him on the hand, and Paul simply, if I had a room full of people, I'd ask everybody to say it after me. He shook it off. I guess you guys can say it. What did Paul do? He, sh he just shook it off. I hate being bitten by snakes. But in the broad view of Paul's journey, this appears, at least to him, to be a minor incident. It's like, he seems to be so certain of the I'm going to Rome thing and so inoculated from difficulty, he just shook it off. The fact is, I'm better most of the time at dealing with the big things, like hopefully avoiding shipwrecks, than I am with those serpentine little things, like, you know, I get a negative comment about some minor point that can affect me in a major way. Things like that. You guys know what I mean. But Paul didn't sweat the small stuff. He just shook it off. Sometimes things happen that seem big at the time, but you know they're not going to kill you. You know what you should do when you just about get where you're going and a snake fastens itself to your hand when a critic speaks against you, when a valued team member decides to move on, when a negative news article is filled with misinformation, when it is forecasted to rain uh, on a huge weekend that you've planned for for months and you have to change all your plans. You know what you do when that happens? You just shake it off. 
See, we have to learn how to keep courage when big things go wrong and how to shake off those little snake bites that really, they're not going to kill us. Things will, listen, this may not sound like an optimistic statement, but it's the truth. Things will go wrong on your way to your future. You just have to have the courage to get up the next day and keep hearing the voice of Jesus say, keep courage, I'm still going to get you where I plan for you to go. It may not look exactly like you thought it would. The dreams God's given me have never, you know, manifest themselves in, in specific detail, perhaps. It's been some vision in my heart, some sense in my mind of where God's calling us. But the journey sometimes might make it look a little different. But you know if God gave you the thing, if you'll just hang in there, the thing's going to happen. And the things that go wrong actually help us get better and move forward if we can persevere. So, back to the Wright brothers. Um, every time they crashed, we're told they would then go and they would uh, get together, just the two of them, and say, what went wrong? How do we fix it? And every time they made incremental process towards getting to their future. That's the way to deal with the inevitable setbacks that life deals us. Here's what James told us in James chapter 1 verse 2. He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I'm going to read that again. It deserves another reading with better emphasis. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Look, when you have a shipwreck or a snake bite, get up, get better, move forward, keep your courage. I want to encourage you because of whose you are and who you serve, you will create a God-dreamed future for yourself and others. Refuse to give up. Refuse to give in. Refuse to lose hope. Keep courage and take it with you to your God-dreamed future.